everybody. Welcome to Sunday School. My name is Josh Sainer, and I am one of the elders at Grace Christian Fellowship North. And it is good to be back here for William Tyndale and the History of the English Bible Part 2. So thank you for coming back. By a show of hands, who was not here last week? Okay, okay. So I'm going to call on some of you that were here last week to go ahead and help review for us. But before we start, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you that we can gather together for church. We thank you for Sunday school. Father, we pray that today we would be able to hear your word. And Father, this morning I pray that we would all be encouraged and inspired by the life of William Tyndale. Thank you for heroes of the faith. We thank you for men like Tyndale who were willing to give all so that the word of God would be proclaimed. And that men and women could know truth and could know Jesus Christ. And for this we are thankful. And I pray this morning you would bless my words. And we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. William Tyndale. So who is William Tyndale? This is a slide that I had up last week. So we'll briefly go over it again. William Tyndale was many things. Tyndale was a reformer, scholar, hero, pioneer, smuggler. He was a translator. He was a prisoner and ultimately he was a martyr for his faith and for what he believed. And William Tyndale spent much of his life uh, in hiding and exile because he lived at a time when to possess the Bible, to recite in English, to recite the Bible in English, or to have a copy of the Bible in English was illegal. Hard to believe. So, by actually first, I, I have a question here. I have this nice leather-bound King James Bible. It's color. It's got maps. Any idea how much this Bible cost? We've got 85, 150. What else? Anyone else? We'll get one more. Okay, 95. So, it's a bit of a trick question. I actually do not know because it was a gift for my grandmother given to me, who is the king, she was a King James only type of person. But it's a trick because really this Bible costs, it's an incalculable cost. It costs blood. It costs the life of William Tyndale. Because the King James Version, even though that was not a direct translation from Tyndale, over 80% of the New Testament is Tyndale's, and about 70% of the Old Testament is from William Tyndale. So it's hard to really calculate the cost of what we know of today and the Bibles that we have, but uh, that is the um, King James Version stands on the shoulders of William Tyndale. Okay, now for a quick review for those of you that were here last week. He was born in 1494 in Gloucestershire to a wealthy family. Um, he was educated at Oxford and Cambridge. Can anybody tell me something important about his time at Cambridge? There were a couple really important things that happened when Tyndale uh, was at Cambridge in university. Erasmus, yeah, Erasmus was a Dutch scholar and he compiled the Greek New Testament for the first time and had it printed and published. And Tyndale used this and was really uh, heavily reliant upon the New Testament in Greek to do his translation work. Anything else about his time at Cambridge? 
Cambridge had become a hotbed for Protestant ideology. Luther's works were all throughout the university, and scholar and student alike began to digest and read and began to debate Luther's ideas. And so Tyndale was heavily influenced with the Protestant movement at that time. There was a problem, though, when it comes to translating the English Bible. And we talked about this, very important in the life of William Tyndale. Anyone recall, what was the problems that he faced? Correct. Yeah, so there was a big change from modern English, or excuse me, Middle English to modern English. So that was kind of a time period. Okay, another great thing, no one knew the language Hebrew. Yep. There were two laws that we talked about. One, in 14, have it here, 01, there was a law passed called De Heretico Cumbruendo. And this law allowed the burning of heretics. So if you were deemed a heretic under the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church, you could be put to death by burning. It was one of the strictest religious censorship laws ever to be enacted in the country of England. The second law in 14... 08 was called the Constitutions of Oxford. Anybody remember the importance of the Constitutions of Oxford? What did the law say? That's why we're doing review. That's okay. So the Constitutions of Oxford were laws put together that made it illegal to possess any scripture in English. So if you possessed or you recited or you did translation work from the official church language, which was Latin, into English, you could be punished by death. So because of these two things, being considered a heretic for Reformation-type ideas, or possessing the word of God in, the, in your own language, English, you could be put to death. So these were great problems that William Tyndale faced. 1523, he moved to London. What did he go to London for? Say again. I heard something. He may have. I like that. 1523, he went to a man that was the Bishop of London, Cuthbert Tunstall, to try to seek a license to do this translation work. Because again, it was illegal. So he thought, if I could obtain a license, I might be able to do this translation work. To which he was not successful. So he left at that point forever, never to return back to his homeland in 1524 to remain the rest of his life on the continent of Europe. And here is where he set forth his translation work. And so he had already probably done most of the translation from Greek to the New Testament by 1524 to 1525. So in 1525, we have what is called the Matthew Fragment. And we talked about this briefly. Anybody else want to quickly tell us what was the Matthew Fragment? Anyone remember? Oh, perfect. If I had gift cards, you would have earned one. Good notes. So Tyndale had started, he found a printer in Germany to do, to do this very dangerous work. But the authorities had figured out what was happening. 
So right before the authorities had ransacked the printer's house, Tyndale caught word. And he, is, he and his associates were able to grab the manuscripts and all the pages that had been printed of the New Testament before they ransacked and arrested them. And they got to Matthew 22, verse 12, before the authorities busted in. So that was as far as he got. But then in 1526, he was able for the first time to get the New Testament published and printed in English. And again, this is historic because up to this point in English history, a man by the name of John Wycliffe had done a translation from the Latin language into English. And that Bible was far bigger than this King James Study Bible. And it, had, it was woodcut and it was handwritten. Now Tyndale, for the first time ever, has been able to translate from the original language that the New Testament was written in, Greek, and now it's been printed on a movable type printing press, so it's in nice small form, this is not obviously it, um, a way to be able to conceal the Bible, have it easily readable, as well as able to be uh, purchased because it was affordable. So 1526 is the first time the New Testament had been published and printed in English from the original language. From there, he went on to Germany, and he learned Hebrew. And as someone already pointed out, this is historic because at this point in history, nobody in, on the island of England knew Hebrew. Most didn't even know there was a language. And the few that even had heard of Hebrew had no clue that it was associated to the Bible. So Tyndale spent a lot of time mastering the Hebrew language and then translated the first five books of Moses, being the Pentateuch, into English. And that was revolutionary because why? One last question before we move on. Besides the fact that no one knew Hebrew, and if you recall, there was one last thing that was kind of uh, groundbreaking at this time. Say again? It was very accurate. That's good. Nothing up until that point in world history had ever been translated from Hebrew to English. So Tyndale's a pioneer. No, nothing had ever been translated from the language of Hebrew into the English language. So he is the first to do any translation of Hebrew into English. Yes. His version. <laughs> so that's actually, we're going to talk about that a bit now because he is called, you, I don't think you two were here last week, or if you were, okay, I'm going to repeat. He is considered by some as the father of the English Bible, but also like the chief architect of the English language because he existed at a point when there was a transition from Middle English to Modern English. So with his translation work, he really changed the English language forever. And much of the words we use today, especially Bible language, are Tyndale's. So he translated for the common Englishman. So that brings us to the second edition of William Tyndale's New Testament, which was published in 1534. So about a decade later now, he has been on the continent of Europe from 1524 to 1534. He knows Hebrew and Greek. His Greek is razor sharp. He's a scholar. So he's able to go back and fix the 4,000 issues that he knew were in his original translation. If you remember, he was under duress, always on the move. There was the Matthew fragment situation where he had to flee up the Rhine River, was almost caught. 
So that he had done that first translation quickly. Now he's had time, he has money, he has benefactors, and he's able to go back and revise his first the first edition to the second edition. So now we have this 1534 English New Testament that's corrected. He's improved his Greek. The English is better. And really the 1534 edition we would consider kind of the, 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 the Bible that had uh, all the versions that go after this, and we're going to look at those today, really rest on the shoulders of his 1534 version. Does someone have a question? I saw a hand. Okay. So 1534, these sell out really quickly. Um, the second they hit the shores of England, again, they're smuggled. We talked about this last week a bit. They're smuggled through different merchants into the ports in London. They're sold on the streets and they make it through the country land or the countryside of England. They're sold quickly. Then the 1535 edition is quickly published and printed. And now you do have a very small stout sized Bible that can easily be hidden. So it's easy to conceal and hide. So this is really beneficial for the people of England because now they're able in their, their own language to read the Bible for the first time ever. Now, we talked about a little bit about the transition from middle to modern English. And again, we, uh, I had a, a slide up last week that showed the Lord's Prayer in Old English to Middle English to Modern English. And we often wrongly think that the words in the King James Bible are Old English. But the words in the King James Bible are Modern English. And the King James versions that we have today are simply the KJV of 1611 with the, the uh, words spelled to our modern-day spelling. But the King James Version language and what William Tyndale was instrumental in was changing the rhythm, the flow, bringing order to the English language, getting the syntax right, the grammar right, inventing new words. Last week we looked at words that were coined by William Tyndale. What were some of those words? Louder, please. Atonement. So atonement was one of the words that was in existence, but he really made it something so that people uh, knew and understood what it meant. At one mint is really the way it would have been said then. But yeah, atonement, Passover, scapegoat, Jehovah. Another one, uh, say again. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, there's many. Another one I didn't mention last week is fisherman. That's a word that he coined, fisherman, and that's a word we use so frequently today. So uh, biographer da David Daniel ha wrote a very fantastic biography on William Tyndale. He makes the point that William Tyndale translated for the plowboy in the field, not for the professor in the classroom. And that's why his, his translation is so beautiful. It's easy to read because, again, he translated for the common Englishmen and women of his day. He wanted the average uh, person in England to be able to read and understand the Bible, and at least if they heard it, if they couldn't read, that they would understand what is being spoken. So that is why the, uh, the, the KJV has very beautiful language, because most of it comes from Tyndale. So here are some of the phrases uh, that he has coined and translated for the first time ever. You're very familiar. Seek, and ye shall find. Ask, and it shall be given you. Judge not that ye be not judged, the salt of the earth, the signs of the times, 
these are phrases that forever are burned into our minds for those of us that, that know the Bible and have heard the Bible for probably years and years. Here are some other ones. Am I my brother's keeper? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He went out and wept bitterly. Fight the good fight. These are um, phrases and verses that we're familiar with that for the first time ever were the translative work of William Tyndale. And phrase after phrase really came from English life. The way the life was being lived by the average person in England is what he would use to build into his um, translation work. A city set on a hill. Um, words like this he really drew from English life. Tyndale was uh, well known for one of the things he did, which you can see in the language, the translation work, is that he used monosyllables. He used a lot of one-syllable words specifically at the start of his sentences. And then if there's polysyllables, they often ended at the, uh, they would be at the, towards the end of a sentence. He went out and wept bitterly. And you see that through much of the King James Version because often it's, it's Tyndale's. So he really gave purpose to the rhythm and the movement of the English language. And he did this so that there would be an energetic cadence for the reader. So Tyndale was really a genius. He really shaped modern day English. And that's why he can be called a chief architect of the modern uh, English language. Here's my favorite. I like we don't have a delay today. That's awesome. Let not your hearts be troubled. For 500 years that's worked. But then there's this version. Do not be worried or upset. It just doesn't capture the meaning of that text. This is from John 14. Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going to leave. I'm about to leave you. There's a sense of sorrow and sadness. Let not your hearts be troubled. Tyndale was a master when it came to language. But Tyndale had many, many enemies. Many enemies throughout his time. Again, because he was living in a dangerous time and doing dangerous work. King Henry VIII. Probably everybody here has heard and known of King Henry VIII. He was the king during the time of William Tyndale in the early 16th century. In 1530, King Henry was trying to divorce his wife, Catherine of Aragon, whom he called that Spanish cow. And so he was trying to divorce her for a young maiden by the name of Anne Boleyn. And William Tyndale wrote in 1530, The Practice of Prelates, another book. And in this book, he opposed this divorce. And he also wrote against this other guy up here, Cardinal Woolsey, who was um, the cardinal at that time. And um, he wrote against both of them. Um, because, excuse me, getting off my notes. He wrote against both of them, and so that obviously evoked the wrath of King Henry VIII and, Will, and Cardinal Wolsey. So King Henry VIII ended up writing um, a law that said all Tyndale's works must be burned and banned. In addition, any distributors of his work were to be banished and also sent to the flames. Okay, Tunstall, Cuthbert Tunstall. 
Anybody remember who Bishop Cuthbert Tunstall was? We talked about him also last week, and I think I even just briefly mentioned him. That's correct. Yeah, Tunstall. He was the Bishop of London, and he was a scholar. So Tyndale thought, being a Greek scholar, this guy Tunstall, that if anyone would be willing to help me do this translation work, it might be this guy. But Tunstall, again, was wary of this type of work because it seemed too familiar to what Luther was doing in Germany. There was a peasants' revolt, there was turmoil in Saxony, and Tunstall thought, there's no way I'm going to allow on my watch this translation work to be done. So, um, once uh, Tyndale left England, and then his uh, New Testament started to come back in, it landed in the ports of England, as I've already mentioned. So here, Tunstall now begins to see William Tyndale's works arriving in his city of London. And so he preached a famous sermon at St. Paul's Cathedral in October of 26, back when the first translation came out. And he said he found 2,000 errors. He called Tyndale's works pestiferous and pernicious poison. And they burned thousands of his copies in front of St. Paul's. But when you burn the English Bible in front of English men and women, it had the opposite effect. It made people want to get more versions of this Bible. And so what it also did is it allowed the um, sale of Bibles. So they had to purchase them, and often they were purchased at inflated prices. So the prices were far more than they originally would have been. And William Tyndale, I don't have the quote up, but he is said to have welcomed the purchase of the Bibles, specifically because it was going to give him more money so he could work on future translations. There's a man by the name of Bishop Stokesley, Stokesley, John Stokesley, pictured here at the end. Now, he is actually more famous than Tunstall, who was a great persecutor of Protestants, because he persecuted even more and put more to death, potentially even more than the next guy we're about to look at by the name of Sir Thomas More. So Tunstall and Stokesley were two bishops, um, both in London, Stokesley was the Bishop of London after Tunstall that greatly persecuted and tried to hunt down William Tyndale. One last thing on Stokesley. Stokesley was likely the benefactor behind the guy that eventually found and tracked down William Tyndale, who we're going to look at here in just a minute. But the chief of all enemies of William Tyndale is a man most of you have probably heard the name, Thomas More, or Sir Thomas More, or in the Catholic Church, St. Thomas More. The man was anything but a saint. North Spokane has a street, a, middle, a school, and a church called St. Thomas More. Was you were saying something? Yeah, exactly. Now, St. Thomas More, ooh, don't want to say that. Sir Thomas More, he was a devoted Roman Catholic. He was a former lawyer, a judge, a statesman. He even served as a sheriff at one point in his life. He was a scholar, brilliant, well-educated, and he was well-spoken. So he caught the eye and the attention of King Henry VIII and the Bishop of London, Cuthbert Tunstall. So he is uh, also very well-known for, besides his persecution of William Tyndale, anybody else know something about Thomas More? It's my coffee. Kelly, you're like... Mm. There was a movie, A Man for All Seasons. 
And A Man for All Seasons really portrayed Thomas More in a very good light. But we're going to see in a minute he wasn't a good man. But that is a movie. Anyone else? So because he was well-spoken, a statesman, he um, helped King Henry VIII pen um, an article called The Defense of the Seven Sacraments. And this was to combat Martin Luther's Protestant writings. So he helped King Henry VIII pen this book called The Defense of the Seven Sacraments. And the Pope, at that time, Leo X, awarded King Henry VIII the title of Defender of the Faith because of this work. Now, Thomas More was co-author, probably wrote a significant portion of this work. So first, he was a persecutor of William, excuse me, of Martin Luther. So I have a, a collage of quotes. They're all compiled together. This is not one large quote. This will give you a little bit of the understanding of who this guy is and the type of polemics he is able to write. This is an example against Luther. Luther has nothing in his mouth but privies, filth and dung, with which he plays the buffoon. He would cast into his mouth the dung which other men would spit out into a basin. If he will leave off the folly and rage and the, uh, the two now familiar mad ravings, if he will swallow down his filth and lick up the dung with which he has so foully, foul, uh, foully defiled his tongue and his pen, to carry nothing in his mouth but bilge water, sewers, privies, filth, and dung, we will take timely counsel whether we wish to leave this mad friarlet and privy-minded rascal with his ragings and ravings, with his filth and his dung. And I promise I would not use the following language for Pastor Jeff, so I'll I'll, I will translate myself being pooped and pooped out. It says something different. So that is the type of man he is. Very harsh critic of Protestantism. Now he enters the life of William Tyndale around 1529. And he has to be commissioned to read heretical writings. Because again, if you read heretical writings and you read things in English, especially biblical writings, you can be put to death. So Bishop uh, Tunstall commissions him to be able to read Tyndale's writings, which are deemed heretical. And so as he's reading them, he ends up writing over his lifetime uh, 1,000 pages against William Tyndale. Now, today, many Catholics would consider Tyndale like a burr on the coat of a very important man, Thomas More. And so that's the way uh, Catholics would view him. But again, he was an enemy of the gospel. He was a devoted man to his religion. He always, always um, stayed true to the Roman Catholic religion. So he was, in that respect, loyal. There was some things to admire about him. But here is what he wrote. Oh, by the way, he was Lord Chancellor. Lord Chancellor over all of England. By the time now, he is trying to persecute and track down William Tyndale. He called Tyndale the captain of English heretics. He was a hellhound in the kennel of the devil. Tyndale is a new Judas, worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. He is an idolater, a devil worshiper, and a beast out of whose brutish, beastly mouth cometh a filthy foam. The type of language people spoke in back then when they were arguing with one another. Now, while Tyndale was... In hiding, he watched many of his close friends be tracked down and persecuted. Um, he had a close friend by the name of John Firth, who we looked at last week. John Firth, who was converted 
reading Tyndale's works, um, and then was put to death. A man by the name of Richard Bayfield, he ran the ships that brought the books back into um, the ports of London. He was betrayed and arrested and eventually burned. And Thomas Morris wrote of him, Bayfield, that monk and apostate, was well and worthily burned in Smithfield. Another friend of Tyndale's, a man by the name of John Twexbury, he was converted after reading the book called The Parable of the Wicked Mammon, which is another book that Tyndale wrote, ju uh, defending justification by faith alone. And after he read it and was converted, he began to be passionate about um, the Protestant movement. And here he was arrested. He was whipped twice in Thomas uh, More's garden. He had his brows squeezed with small ropes till blood came out. He was then sent to the Tower of London where he was racked until he was lame. He was examined twice again by Tunstall and other bishops. And he was elaborately tortured. And at last they burned him alive. And Thomas More is quoted as saying that he rejoiced that his victim was now in hell where Tyndale is like to find him when they come together. Ugh. Not a good guy, huh? Not someone you would think of as a saint. Well, he is predominantly known for um, persecuting Tyndale for the way Tyndale translated these five words. First, presbyteros. He translated presbyteros instead of senior. And in doing so, he took away the power of the clergy. Next, he translated ecclesia as congregation instead of church, which took away the power from the state authority. He translated the Greek word metanoeo as repent instead of to do penance. And this liberated the common man from the burden of medieval legalism. He uh, translated exomo logeo as acknowledge instead of admit. Here, this questioned the practice of the confession of the priests and the acts of penance. How about agape? We know that word agape. He translated it love instead of charity. And charity had become known for acts of legalism and indulgences, which offered people time out of purgatory. So for these things, William Tyndale was persecuted and deemed a heretic. Now, King Henry VIII was vicious himself, and not, not uh, Sir Thomas More was unable to escape the wrath of King Henry VIII. So here's a man who went from Lord Chancellor to himself being executed by King Henry VIII. And as I mentioned, he was a true Roman Catholic. And so throughout his time, he was devoted to the Roman Catholic Church and to its theology. So back to King Henry VIII, tried to divorce his first wife and remarry. And for a devout Catholic, that was just wrong. You shouldn't be divorcing your wife in place of a new wife. So he always rejected that, and he never really went along with that divorce. Um, he also didn't go along with the fact that King Henry VIII wanted to declare himself king over the church in England and to separate. And so for these reasons, it earned him eventually the king's disfavor. And a man by the name of Thomas Cromwell, who we're going to look at here briefly, he ended up putting him on trial, and he eventually was found guilty of treason and then was executed and 1535 himself.
So here's a man that went from Lord Chancellor down to being executed as a, her or as a um, traitor. All right, questions. Take a pause for a second. Comments? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's a different time, different time than we live in today, in 2022. And so in those days, Protestants also put people to death. Um, so it was a time when you were considered a heretic that you could be put to death. So he really saw himself as a defender of the Roman Catholic Church, a defender of true orthodoxy and doctrine. And so it wasn't uncommon, you know, at that point. Again, because of the laws passed by the English Parliament that allowed the burning of heretics for this type of thing to be done. So it, it is hard for us at the time we live in to think, how could this have happened? Um, there's, we don't have time to talk about it, but there's, I'm reading a, a biography I'm not through that pretty much devotes um, Tyndale's time uh, back and forth with Thomas More. And there's a lot of things about Thomas More that aren't great. So yeah, I, that's why I consider him an enemy of the gospel. Because he did persecute the gospel, the true gospel. But yeah, it's hard to comprehend. Good question. Yeah. Fifteen fifty-eight. Well, for sure under her reign, yeah. And I think part of the story here is as we're moving through, right? We're kind of moving through the the Protestant Reformation in England as we talk about William Tyndale. So a lot of what Tyndale was doing as the chief reformer in England, is moving for reform. And so eventually with his writings and many of the other men around his time period, um, and then with King Henry VIII separating himself from the Church of Rome, these things kind of set the stage for the Re Reformation to take hold of in England. So after Tyndale is put to death, we're about to look here shortly at his martyrdom, then you have the English Bible now being proliferated throughout England, the Reformation really moving in, and so later, yeah, he, he wouldn't probably have been put to death if it was under Queen Elizabeth. But history, ha it has a, a way of, you know, the way it moves forward. And this is kind of where we're at. Okay, one other. Yeah. They don't necessarily debate his translations. You know, they've come up with their own English translations. Um, I think it's called the Dewey Reigns version. So there are other English translations, but I, I don't think from my reading that they ended up, you know, still criticizing. Now they wouldn't, what the issue with the Catholic Church is, not so much the words, but the meaning behind those words. So in that sense, yes, they would absolutely still to this day not agree with the translation and the way in which he translated priest instead of elder, things like that. Because words mean things. And the way they were translated was to, to, to say truth about 
something that the Catholic Church was trying to say otherwise of. Okay, William Tyndale. There was a period where he was favorable to King Henry VIII. And the story uh, uh, involves a man by the name of Thomas Cromwell, who then ended up taking over Lord Chancellor position after um, Sir Thomas More had been put to death. So Thomas Cromwell was favorable to Tyndale, and Sir Thomas More wrote a book. Excuse me, Sir Thomas More. Off my notes. Tyndale wrote a book called The, the Obedience of the Christian Man. I think I skipped it. There it is. The Obedience of the Christian Man. And this is the first time in English writing where really it um, supported this idea of the, the rights of the king being divine. Okay, so up until this point... Kings were not looked at as being divine or having the right over their people, especially related to church matters. So Tyndale writes this book called The Obedience of the Christian Man. And King Henry VIII gets a copy of it, likely from now his queen Anne Boleyn. And so he reads this and he sees that Tyndale is favorable towards the monarchy. So this earns him brief favor with the king. So Thomas Cromwell um, seizes on that opportunity to try to get um, Tyndale to come back to England. But also, before we jump to that part of it, the, I flipped ahead, that's why I was off on my notes. The Christian, the obedience of the Christian man, this work of Tyndale, many scholars believe this really aided the act of supremacy. And what is the act of supremacy? I've already talked about it, just not in that language. Who knows what the act of supremacy is in England? The act of supremacy is the act that King Henry VIII declared, I am supreme, I am the ruler over the church in England. And it was the official break with Rome. So that act of supremacy, many scholars feel, kind of originated with Tyndale's work. It's not what Tyndale was trying to do, but in this work, the obedience of the Christian man should be obedient to the king, who is divine, in that sense, not divine as God is divine, um, we think, many think that uh, King Henry VIII seized upon this, and this is really what helped his break with Rome. So, Thomas Cromwell seizes on this opportunity, and he hires a man by the name of Stephen Vaughn, who I searched and searched and could not find pictures. There is no pictures of this guy, Stephen Vaughn. But Stephen Vaughn was a wealthy merchant, and he had become friends with Cromwell. And so Cromwell said, hey, go and find Tyndale. And let's see if we convince, can convince him to come back and be the king's propagandist. So this guy goes out, and I've read different accounts. It's hard to know how often he actually met Tyndale in person. He was able to write and to converse with Tyndale. But there is a point when he is able to meet Tyndale in person, and he begs him, the king wants you to come back. Come back home. Come back to England. We'll grant you safe passage. You can return and be part of the king's court. Now Tyndale had known of stories of a man like, for example, Jan Hus, who was burned after being promised safe passage. So he is leery to return home, even though he is guaranteed safe passage. So Stephen Vaughan, he finally reports back to Cromwell in a letter on June 19th. And he said, I always find Tyndale singing one note. And this kind of becomes a famous, a famous saying in the life of William Tyndale. I always find him singing one note. 
What do you think that one note is? what my boys probably would say. I like it. The Bible in English. Grant the Bible in English and I will come back home. So here's a portion of the letter. Please bear with me as I read it. Tyndale says in this letter, what gracious words are these to the fact that he's being offered to come back? I assure you, if it would stand with the king's most gracious pleasure to grant only a bare text of the scripture to be set forth among his people, like as is put forth among the subjects of the emperor in these parts. He's in, he's in uh, what would be known as Germany. And of all their Christian princes, be it of the translation of what person soever shall please his majesty. He's saying, even if it's not my translation, just let it be an English translation. I shall immediately make faithful promise never to write more, not abide two days in these parts after the same, but immediately to repair unto his, unto his realm. And there most humbly I will submit myself at the feet of his royal majesty, offering my body to suffer what pain or torture, yea, what death his grace will so this be obtained. Until that time, I will abide the asperity of all chances whatsoever shall come and endure my life in as many pains as it is able to bear and suffer. So he essentially said, if you allow the translation of the Bible in English, whether it's my translation or another man's, I will gladly come home and suffer death. So when the king got it, what do you think his reaction was? I wish it was yes. It was rage. How dare this guy speak to me this way? And therefore, that moment in time where King Henry VIII was favorable forever ended. And Tyndale, again, was for the rest of his life still tracked down and uh, was to be tracked down and hunted. So sadly, he was never able to come back. But again, that, that's what uh, he wrote back to Cromwell, who delivered it to the king. Whenever, Tyndale is always found to be singing this one note that his countrymen would have the Bible in English so that they could be saved through knowing Jesus Christ in the scriptures. Well, this brings us to the martyrdom of, king, uh, of um, William Tyndale. So the story goes like this. Again, he was being hunted throughout all of England and predominantly under the man Bishop Stokesley at this point. We already looked at Bishop Stokesley. And most scholars think that he uh, found and hired a guy by the name of Henry Phillips. Henry Phillips was a despicable man. Ugh, despicable man. Son of a wealthy, uh, wealthy nobleman was on his way down to deliver a large sum of money and on his way down to London, he blew it, gambled it away, lost it, somehow blew it. And so he finds himself in debt, and he's desperate. He's going to get thrown in prison. So most people think that Stokesley had found this guy, Henry Phillips. No historian can be for sure, but that's the, that's the speculation. And so we think he was offered a, a large sum of money to go and track William Tyndale down. Now, no one knew what William Tyndale looked like. Like, he did a good job of always being on the run, and he went by another name, Hitchens, which was a family name instead of Tyndale. But nonetheless, Henry Phillips is able to figure out where he's at in, um, at this time, it would have been in the Netherlands or Antwerp. Phillips arrives in 1535. He eventually finds the house of English merchants. So English merchants were businessmen trading in northern Europe, trading and exporting goods back and forth. 
Tyndale had always been associated with English merchants. They were often his benefactor. They made money also when they shipped his books illegally back in, or his Bibles, back into England. So Phillips arrives here. He is a well-spoken, charming man. He kind of makes his way into this group. And at this time, Tyndale is living with a, a man by the name of Thomas Points. He's living in his house. And Thomas Points is very, very leery of this guy, Henry Phillips. He's like, something's off. Something's not right with this guy. But Tyndale being just kind of the, the good, God-fearing, lighthearted, trusting everybody type of guy that he was, befriended Henry Phillips. And the relationship began to um, grow, grow, grow and grow stronger. Well, one day, it was actually May 21st, 1535, Henry Phillips came to the house of Thomas Points to visit Tyndale. And they arranged a time for dinner or lunch later in the afternoon. And so he came back that afternoon or evening, and he was going to take him out. Now, you have to understand, he had already prearranged guards to be waiting at a certain spot, and he was going to lead Tyndale right to these guards so that Tyndale would be arrested. But here's why the man's more despicable in my mind. Not just because he was a betrayer, which he was. That's the primary reason. He even swindled Tyndale out of money before he betrayed him. So he made up a story and lied about how his purse, they called, you know, money bags, purses in the day had been stolen and he didn't have money. And Tyndale gave him two pounds. And two pounds at this time would have fed a poor family for about two months. So he swindled two pounds out of Tyndale. And as they're going down the streets, the windy streets in Belgium, they kind of come over or under an overpass. And on the other side were two guards. And he let Tyndale go first. So as Tyndale walked through, to his surprise, here were two guards that stood in front of him. And Henry Phillips pushed Tyndale right into their arms and pointed, this is the guy. And Tyndale was surprised. He had no idea what is happening. So they grabbed him, they arrested him, and they hauled him off. And Thomas Points finds out about it because his house gets ransacked. Looking for translation work, you know, looking for other um, heretical Protestant ideologies. So Thomas Points comes home. And there was a sense of... Uh, immunity, not a sense, there was a level of immunity that the English merchants had when they lived in these other countries. That was part of the gig. We're here to do trade work and we get immunity. So he was really upset that this happened in his house. But quickly he found out how dangerous it was to defend William Tyndale. So he himself was then, um, the word went out to arrest him. So he had to flee and he fled back to England never to return back to his home, never to see his wife again, and eventually his wife uh, divorced him because he never essentially abandoned her because he had to flee. So William Tyndale is brought about 12 miles outside of Brussels to uh, a castle called the Vilvord Castle. Oh, I got to pick it up. We don't have much time. So many good things to talk about. So he's brought to the Vilvord Castle, and that's where he spends 18 months in prison. Listen to what Tyndale wrote in his final letter. He said, I suffered greatly from cold in the head. I'm afflicted by uh, what would be a respiratory perpetual discharge, which is much increase in this cell. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are worn out. He requested a lamp so that in the evening uh, be, he wanted a lamp to do more translation work. He did not finish the Hebrew yet. We talked about the Pentateuch, Jonah, and then Joshua through 2 Chronicles. He wanted to finish his translation work of the Old Testament. So he said, it is indeed wearisome, sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary 
permit me to have my Hebrew Bible, my Hebrew grammar, and a Hebrew dictionary that I may pass the time in my study to which he was not granted. Now, because Tyndale was such a godly man, history, there's nothing that you can see specifically, but it comes through historian, historians like uh, oral tradition, that the, the jailer and his daughter were converted during that 18 months that Tyndale spent in jail. So after 18 months, his trial had begun. And here's what he was found guilty of, heresy. I'm not going to read through all of the charges. First, he had maintained that faith alone justifies. Second, he maintained that to believe in the forgiveness of sins, uh, he maintained that to believe in the forgiveness of sins and to embrace mercy in the gospel was enough for salvation. No works needed. Third, he averred that human traditions cannot bind the conscience except where uh, they neglect and often there is scandal. He denied the freedom of the will, which would be what we would think of as the traditional reformed or Calvinistic doctrine of salvation. He denied that there was purgatory. Sixth, he affirmed neither the virgin, meaning Mary, nor the saints pray for us in our own persons. Eventually, he was found guilty by the church and turned over to the secular authorities because the church, the Roman Catholic Church, would always uh, run the trial, deem someone a heretic, but then they left it to the secular arm of the government to actually punish people and put them to death. So in 1536, he was uh, condemned as a heretic. He was brought out in the town square for a pageant, which would be a pageant, a demonstration of him being cast out of the church. He was dressed in his priestly garments. He would have been made to kneel. They would have scraped his palms with glass or a sharp object, um, representing that the anointing oil had been taken from him. The bread and the wine of the mass, you know, different than what communion would be, were put in his hands and removed. And then he was disrobed and stripped of his priestly garments. For some reason, no one knows why, for two more months, he was put back in Vilvord Castle. Some think it was Thomas Cromwell really working hard to try to free William Tyndale, which was of no avail. So eventually, he was brought out in the morning of October, in, in October morning of 1536, he was led out to an open square where the pile of wood had been laid and a stake was there. And there was gunpowder, they actually put gunpowder in the wood so when he burned it would be a very big explosion type of burning. He was put up on the stake and he was asked to recant, to which he did not. An iron chain was wrapped around his body, tied, his, his feet were tied, and then a hemp noose was put around his throat, to which he was, right before, he was, he was strangled first. But right before he was strangled, he uttered his famous words, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Always singing that one note, let the king see that the people need an English version of the Bible. And so he was spared burning, though his body was burnt, he was choked, um, and he was asphyxiated first. And so in one sense, that was a grace for him because the Lollards, who we talked about last week in England, and heretics were always burnt first. So he was strangled, and then he was burnt. Now we only have oh, such a short time. I'm going to have to blow through these. So his cry, Lord, Open the king of England's eyes was answered. 
1535, a year before he's put to death, this handsome man, Miles Coverdale. Many of you have heard of the name of Miles Coverdale. He was a friend and an associate of Tyndale. He spent time with him in Hamburg, Germany during his time of translating Hebrew. Coverdale had already, while Tyndale was in jail, started to work on assembling the full Bible, not just the New Testament, but the full Bible in English. And so he had what I would call a nod from the authorities. Not a license and not an authorization, but a nod to begin to assemble the Bible in English. So what Coverdale does is he's not a scholar himself. He does not know Hebrew and he barely knows Greek. He takes all of Tyndale's New Testament, he takes most of Tyndale's Old Testament translations, and he fills in the blanks, like Psalms, Proverbs, some of the other historical writings, and he translates them from either the Latin, back to the Latin, or the German. And he finishes, though, a complete Bible, and he's able to get it printed and published in 1535, and it is called the Coverdale Bible. So this is very, very historic. It's the first time, again, now that we have a full Bible, mostly in the original language, but that's printed, not handwritten like Wycliffe's Bible. So Coverdale is able to get this Bible out, but it never really gains much attention. Nothing really ever happens with it. Um, he was a friend of, of Anne Boleyn, the, the king's second wife, um, and we think there's some reason there. That's why it was favorable to King Henry VIII to allow this. It wasn't authorized or licensed, but it was allowed. This is the first time the Bible had the Apocrypha, the Old Testament writings that are not canon. They were separated. They were now put separate in an appendix in the back of the Bible. And he referenced St. Jerome, who we talked about last week, who translated the Latin Vulgate. Jerome said these books aren't even canon back in the 4th century. Um, Josephus, the, the, the Jewish historian, you can read, no one thought that the Apocrypha was ever part of the Hebrew canon. But the, the Roman Catholic Church had them part of the canon. So Coverdale separates them and he puts them in the back. He also gets chapter summaries now at the heading of most chapters. But this Bible, I'm going to talk just about one or two more. The Matthews Bible, very, very important. The reason is this Bible is the first Bible that is set forth with the king's most gracious license. And here's the quick story on the Matthews Bible. It is edited not translated by a man, John Rogers. John Rogers uh, took Tyndale's work and he took Coverdale's work and he was able to put them together under a pen name, Thomas Matthews. So it wasn't his name because even though the king gave a license, it was still dangerous work to do anything with Bible translation. So he compiles the Bible. He basically improves upon Coverdale's work, but this is mostly Tyndale, again, it's going to be 80% Tyndale New Testament, 70% Old Testament Tyndale. And now this Bible becomes very, very popular, and it is read throughout all of England. However, John Rogers himself, if you look at the very top, he was the very first of all pro English Protestants to be put to death under Bloody Mary. So about 20 years later, when... Mary came to power. She persecuted all the English Protestants, and he was the first to burn. He was the first to burn. Rogers was a priest. He was converted when he met Tyndale in 1534. Tyndale converted him in Antwerp, 
He became a true believer, and because he was a priest, he wasn't married, and he married. So this is a fantastic story of the Matthews Bible. Um, at the very end of the Matthews Bible, or excuse me, at the end of the Old Testament here, this, uh, the prophecy of Malachi, you see these big initials, W.T., and this is to honor William Tyndale because everyone knew, though it said Matthew's Bible, this is William Tyndale's work. So his initials are placed at the end of the Old Testament to honor William Tyndale. The Great Bible, going to have to skip through a lot of this. This is the first Bible authorized now by King Henry VIII. And basically all this is, is this is Coverdale again. He's, he's consistent in his work and being able to put these English Bibles together. Coverdale, under the supervision of Thomas Cromwell, put together the Great Bible. King Henry VIII now had ordered in 1538 that the Bible should be read and allowed throughout all of England. So Tyndale's, Tyndale's prayer, Lord, open the King of England's eyes, has come to fruition here uh, two years later, after his martyrdom, you see the king authorizing the Bible to be read throughout all of England. So 1539, this new translation work, it's really not new. It's just continually being improved upon by Coverdale, um, is put forth called the Great Bible. And so this Bible is chained to every single parish or church throughout England, and it's commanded to be read out loud. It's so popular that everyone begins to just read the Bible, and they're disrupting the preaching. And so then in 1539, King Henry VIII ordered another uh, law that said it's, you've got to stop reading the Bible out loud in church because no one's paying attention to the, the sermons because no one had the chance to read the Bible. Um, we're going to have to skip the Geneva Bible. I wish we didn't. This actually, the Geneva Bible, was put together by English, English Protestants that were living uh, in Geneva during Bloody Mary's reign. And the, this Bible, the Geneva Bible, again, it's Tyndale's work and Coverdale's, became more popular and was the Bible of uh, William Shakespeare. It was the Bible that was carried over on the Mayflower, and it was the Bible of the original pilgrims that arrived in this country. So the Geneva Bible was very, very popular. It was the Bible that replaced the Great Bible and really had a long, long, long life throughout all of, of England. And most of you know the King James Version 1611. So just ending on this note, we'll be done. King James Version, uh, the 1611, the reason this came about was because of political turmoil. The Geneva Bible was highly Calvinistic. In its margins, and the study notes, it was very, very reformed, very, very Calvinistic, and it was a Puritan Bible. And in England, this didn't go over that well. So a bunch of scholars got together and they said, we need a Bible without annotation. That's not going to upset people. And so 47 scholars came together, and over seven years, they put forth, they worked on uh, this Bible that, again, was authorized by King James uh, to be throughout England. And so 1611 version, again, is 80% Tyndale and 70% Old Testament Tyndale. So that, unfortunately, we'll have to end there, is the history of the English Bible. Today there are about 100 English translations in existence. And when Tyndale started translating, there was 2.8 million people in all of the world that spoke English, and that was it. Today, there's 1.5 billion people that speak English. 
500 million of it, it's their primary language, and there's over 100 English translations. So Tyndale was an important man in the history of the English Bible. So I would recommend if you're to get one book, there's three of these left in the bookstore. I just checked. This small little book, it's the first one, The Daring Mission of Tyndale by Pastor and Dr. Stephen Lawson is a fantastic, easy-to-read little um, story of Tyndale. Looks like it's 16 bucks. So any, any final thoughts or questions as I kind of break down? I wish we had more to get through, but time goes quick. Yes. Oh, well, thank you for listening. <laughs> Am I a teacher? Well, I'm an elder, so, so I like to teach, and I get the opportunity a bit. No, I own a small business in Spokane, and, and one of the lay elders, but not by trade. So I, have, I, do not, I cannot explain why I have a passion for Tyndale other than his story. We had, I had li life lessons and applications to get through. Tyndale's life resonates with me. He was courageous. He wasn't afraid of persecution. He loved God's word. Um, the authority of scripture was primary in his mind, and it just resonates with me. So, yeah, I love William Tyndale. He's my hero. Well, let's close in prayer. See, people are starting to gather in for church. Father, thank you. We thank you for men like Tyndale who are willing to give all, to sacrifice their very lives for the word of God. Help us have this courage. Help us to be bold like William Tyndale in our faith, not to be ashamed of the gospel. So we thank you. Father, I pray now for our church service as we're about to begin, that many people would come to hear the gospel, that many people would confess Christ as Savior, and that the Spirit of God would be poured out upon us. And for this, we thank you, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for